During the American Revolution, British authority and soldiers likewise acquired several monikers throughout the course of the war and were synonymously referred to as the British, the Crown, Great Britain, Lobsterbacks, and Regulars. Hi, I'm Shannon, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN, and on this episode, we look at escalating tensions between colonists and the British government before the American Revolution. Ithaca College professor Michael Trotty discusses those rising tensions and how they led to war. Hang tight, class starts right after this. So today we're going to be moving from the colonial era, which we've been talking about, into talking about the prelude, anyway, to the revolution, the tensions that come out of the colonial wars and more than the colonial wars. And so this is a sort of um, transition class period. We're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about the revolution, the ideological um, justifications for it, the actual fighting in the wake of it. What do we do having all this freedom and not knowing how to set up a democracy? Um, So we'll be going in that direction. We've just covered the founding of Jamestown and Massachusetts and the middle colonies. And last time we were talking about how diverse the colonies were getting, not just British Um, but many different people, how much more population, how much they were growing, how the economy was booming, and how the Great Awakening was both dividing colonies one from another, or rather people within the colonies one from another, but also providing a common experience, right? So this is where we've come from, where we're going is the revolution. Today we're talking about wars and we're talking about tensions. The theme of today is the colonists were whining freeloaders, getting all the benefits of British citizenship without footing any of the costs. The motherland fought to protect them. They then objected to carrying any of the burden for paying their share of the costs of protecting them. We're going to talk about wars, the situation at the end of the last war, what the solutions are, including curb the freeloading colonists. Just stay with me on this, okay? Stay with me on this. The European nations were at war over and over and over. By the time you get to George Washington, he's telling America to don't get involved in Europe. They're always going at war, uh, to war with each other and so forth. And the History coming up to the revolution is experience enough of that. King William's War, Queen Anne's War, King George's War, um, over and over again for different reasons having to do with succession, having to do with colonial empires. Some colonies are really thriving, and the nations that own them are enriching themselves. Others are jealous of all of that. Um, And this is providing extra fuel to the already burning fires of the um, tensions between the different European nations. Um, So there's a sort of extra set of reasons. These are happening. They affect the colonies to some small degree or another. This is the one that affects the colonies a lot and in some ways sets the stage uh, for the divisions that we're going to be talking about. We called it the French and Indian War. Um, the fighting started in the Ohio River Valley in, um, in, the 17, uh, in 1754, but officially started, and that's why it's called the Seven Years' War. Um, the British and the French are at each other, not just in North America, but all over the place. 
This is a very big war, a very costly war. In terms of the Seven Years' War and North America, there's fighting in um, Newfoundland, there's fighting Quebec City, Montreal, Fort Niagara in Western Pennsylvania. Um, The French are winning, the British are winning. It's a real contest. One of the key turning points in this war is the Iroquois Confederation, um, taking the side of the British and in that way turning the tables on the French and allowing the British um, to succeed. And the French back off, and the winnings in this war are tremendous for Britain. Are the colonists, who are mostly settled not much in Maine, Maine is a part of Massachusetts and it's very sparsely settled, But from here on down, what role are they playing? 40% of the people fighting in North America are, in fact, colonial troops. Did the British send an army over? Yes. So you've got redcoats who are fighting, the sort of trained British army that are fighting. But 40% of those fighting are colonial troops at this time. The colonies um, were contributing, however... The colonial army was very uh, informal, let's say. And so our professional troops, that's what's won, that is what won us the war, along with the Native American allies. What did the colonial troops do? They fought when it was close to their home. They didn't pay attention when it was further away. When harvest time came, they left the battlefield and went home to harvest. And so one of the lessons coming out of the Seven Years' War is that what's going to win a future conflict is going to be the Redcoats. It's going to be our standing, our regular army. And what's really important is those Native American connections that we've got. What were the effects of the Seven Years' War? Territory. The French controlled all of this territory and claimed an awful lot of territory all the way down to Louisiana. In 1763, in the peace that ends the Seven Years' War, Britain gets all of the territory east of the Mississippi. This is a huge part of North America, much larger than the 13 colonies that we had to start with. That is to say, it's not doubling the size. It's way more than doubling the size of British holdings. So what did we win out of the Seven Years' War, a massive amount of land, a huge victory. What else are effects of this war? Losses, debt. This was a big war fought in the Caribbean, fought in North America, fought in other places on sea and on land. This was a very big war. France is in debt. Britain is in debt. The losses are real, colonial losses. It's not like we didn't lose uh, people over here. British losses. Um, Divergent views of what happened. If you're somebody who lives in Massachusetts and you were fighting up the Lake Champlain and going toward, you have a sense of the way in which you were contributing. You were fighting for the British. That's really different from the view in London. 
where they're saying the key parts of this are the Iroquois and our army. What this person did fighting over here, not really in the field of vision. So competing ideas of even the experiences that we just went through. So the, the Seven Years' War is something that, like the Great Awakening, affected the entire set of colonies. It's a common experience. All of the colonies were fighting against the French, were fearing what was going to happen on the frontier with Native American tribes. So it's bringing us together, but also setting up a little bit of a divide between our perceptions of even how the war was being fought and who was contributing between the British and the colonies. Things make sense so far? Do ask questions if, um, if something is unclear. I can be unclear. So what do we do? In 1763, the French settled by ceding all of these territories, by uh, the British have all of these territories now. Um, and uh, one thing is clear to the British, to us, to the British, um, is that things have to change. Um, look at what just happened with this war and the lessons from it. Um, we can't just keep going on the way that we've gone on. In particular, um, there are three things that we need to make sure don't happen right now, or do ha- three things that have to happen. One is that we cannot have any more fighting. We are in debt. We have had this huge victory. We need to consolidate our gains. We have an empire that is worldwide now, um, so much territory. We need to make sure that we do not go to war again with the Native American tribes in the Ohio River Valley that were the key part of this fight against French, the French. So they set up a proclamation line. Your, book has a, your textbook has a nice map of it. I should have brought in a map for it. A procl- along the Appalachian Mountains, saying, we can settle up to that line, but we are not going to go past that because we cannot possibly have another war right now. So peace with Native Americans, absolutely essential right now for the whole empire and for the British North American colonies. That's one of the things. The second thing is it's so clear that the colonies can't take care of themselves. Look at how they were fighting. So casual. Um, When the fighting got rough, they would run away. It's the British regular. We have to have a standing army in North America if we're going to hold on to these gains. We have to have a standing army in North America. Don't fight Native Americans, that's one. Standing army. The third one is we are deeply in debt. And the entire empire needs to pay for the gains that we've got. That doesn't just mean taxing people in North America. That doesn't mean just taxing people in Britain or in Bermuda. It means everybody. Okay? But we can't single anyone out for special treatment. This we must not do. We're all British. And so we have to be equitable in how we're fashioning these taxes and how we're getting people um, to help pay their share of what was for the entire empire. Sure, um, the British North American colonies got a whole lot of the gain from this. They had enemies on all sides, and now they don't. What an amazing thing 
for the first time in the history of British colonialism in North America, they have peace on their borders. That's a huge thing that the British Empire did for British North American colonists. But we shouldn't make them pay more than their share, but they should pay their share. So starting in 1764, there's a series of acts. The war is just over, right? The proclamation line of 1763, that's right at the end of the war. There was fighting for seven years before that. So right after this, the Sugar Act. We had navigation acts. We talked about those the other day. Those are the ways the British um, connected the empire. And in essence, they made money. If you were violating them, you would be paying fees and so forth. But mostly it was to guide trade to Britain. You have to transship things through British ports to get to the colonies, and in that way they made money. And transship things that are exported out of the colonies to the rest of Europe, and that way they made money. They were about um, orienting trade. Now they're about making money off of the colonists, defraying the expenses of defending, protecting, and securing the colonies. The colonies had hardly been taxed at all before this. Were we taxing people in Britain? Of course we were. All kinds of taxes. Taxes on legal documents, taxes on goods, um, certainly real estate on all kinds of things. Um, Was Parliament taxing the British North American colonies? Hardly at all, mostly through Navigation Act stuff. Parliament, understanding that they had the right to tax just as they tax. Everybody's British. We're just taxing different parts of the empire. In 1865, the next year, they didn't have enough money coming in. The Sugar Act didn't do it. Um, They needed more. And so this is on legal documents. And so the stamp might make us think about postage stamps. No, it's watermarks on paper. If you had a legal document, if you're signing a will, if you're signing a deed, um, all kinds of things, playing cards, um, all kinds of things, it has to be on watermarked paper, and that's how they kept track of it, and you paid a tax on the watermarked paper. Um, Another attempt to get the colonies to pull their weight. You know, are they, after this, paying more than the British are paying in taxes? They still aren't paying as much as the British in Britain are paying in taxes. But at least they're paying a little bit more. They're contributing to all that security that we gave them um, when our army came and with the Iroquois um, were able to push away the French and everything. Another attempt. And we buckled. What a mistake. Parliament backed down when unreasoning colonial opposition flared up. And as a British person, I just have to say, what a dramatic mistake. Because what this does is teaches them that there's something special, that they're not British like the rest of us. We're paying our taxes. We're not rebelling. They can get a little upset and we back down. What good is that going to do? You need to teach them a lesson. Along with this, we tried to teach them a lesson. The Declaratory Act. It doesn't raise any more money and that's a problem. 
because without the Stamp Act, we're still not getting enough money into the coffers to pay our debt from the last war. Parliament coupled the repeal of the Stamp Act with this act, which simply clarified, let's make it clear to those guys in the colonies that Parliament has sovereignty over the colonies in all cases whatsoever. The right to make laws, the right to tax, if you are in fact um, uh, violating those laws, you are a criminal. This is the law we're talking about. This is how society is going to work. In this way, they're making clear the colonies, at least after this, we were dumb enough to um, get rid of the Stamp Act, and so we still have a debt problem. But at least they're clear that they need to abide by the taxes that we're setting up for them. And the next year, we, of course, have to pass more taxes. We still have the debt problem. The entire empire needs this help. Other people are paying it. We need you to pay it, too. Place new taxes upon glass, lead, paper, paints, tea. It also tightened enforcement of what we've got there. Parliament, clear in its right to tax. Of course it's got a right to tax. All of the British people, everywhere they are in the world, push forward. Legislatures, it, this is not, I mean... If you have laws on the books, if Parliament is passing them and you have people who are objecting to them um, and saying, let's not go along with the laws of Britain, treasonous is not a bad word to use for that. The rule of law itself requires you to abide by the laws. And they aren't. So the governor's I mean, obviously, if these upstart assemblies, colonial assemblies, are acting in treasonous way, you're going to disband them. You can't abide treason. These are in place for several years, and after a terrible disorder and a terrible tragedy, they too, stupidly, I would say, were repealed. They were repealed because of the Boston Massacre. What a tragedy. Nobody wanted this to happen. This was terrible. What hoodlums. These young people with stones, throwing stones at British soldiers. They cornered them in a square and were throwing stones and snowballs. The mob was growing and growing. They were cornered. They couldn't get away. And yes, somebody started, they fired a, it's terrible that they fired a volley into this crowd. Five died. What a tragedy. But why were they there? Why uh, were they being cornered? Why were people pelting them with rocks? I mean, what started this wasn't the troops. What started this was the colonists throwing stones and acting like thugs. We did the same things that any government would do when there is tragedy and disorder. We tried to make sure this didn't happen again. We should be able to have our army wherever our army needs to be, but we moved it out of Boston to make sure there were no further problems. 
<clears throat> we repealed most of the towns, uh, towns and duties, the, except the one against uh, for tea, giving in to colonial pressures. Again, I would argue this is a mistake. That what this does is teaches the colonists that they're, you know, unbelievably disordered way of living is going to be rewarded by them not having to be like the rest of the British in the empire treated equitably. They want to be treated some as something special. The East India Tea Company, we have to pass laws that are of benefit to everybody. And there was a particular part of the empire. It's an important part of the empire. The East India Tea Company, a very profitable company uh, previously, was having hard times. It was near bankruptcy. And to save it, uh, the crown gave uh, a monopoly to this company. And it set up more firm, nobody else is going to be trading for tea in the colonies. And we're going to lower the duties that we had on tea. Remember the Townsend duties in Um, 1767 had a duty on tea. They lowered it. But even though they lowered the duties and were doing this for the whole empire, um, instead of celebrating it, they interpreted cheaper legal tea as oppression? What the hell is going on? They whip themselves into a frenzy, and they dump tea. And we're not talking about a cup of tea. We're talking about barrels and barrels and 45 tons. This is hundreds of thousands of pounds of tea. Private property that is destroyed going into salt water. What do you do in the face of mobs who are destroying private property and thinking that's okay. What do you do in the face of colonies who think that there's something special, who think that they can be freeloaders, letting the rest of the empire pay for the benefits that they're getting and being unwilling to pay their way? Well, what you do is you crack down what else can you do? We tried everything else. We tried to be nice. We, tr- we even backed off on some of the taxes. We were clear the, the, declarator- uh, uh, um, the Declaratory Act. Um, but in the wake of this, um, Parliament passed a number of acts, note the plural, um, to bring this colony. We weren't having such a problem with South Carolina with the Tidewater. It was Massachusetts that was being such a problem right now. And so we're going to be measured. We're not going to make everybody pay. We're going to make them pay. These acts closed Boston's port, restricted the representative governing body that we could not trust any longer. Look at how they were acting. We're going to try British officials in England. Are you thinking that we're going to try British officials, which could include soldiers, by the way, Um, In Massachusetts, (laughs) there's no way we could get a free trial there. And we authorize, the army has to be where it has to be, the quartering of troops wherever they were needed. Rebellion 
contempt for the law, mob behavior, freeloading cannot be condoned. Next 30 seconds. Think about this. All right, you colonists, you Americans, can you poke holes in any of my arguments there? You freeloading people, you. Am I wrong with any of this? How would you, how would you phrase it? Yeah. I feel like you were speaking too generally by saying, oh, rights for everyone this for everyone, but it was really just for, like, white people, basically. There's a whole bunch to talk about. Yes, okay, good. That's nice. Other things that come to mind? Yeah. I was kind of being told from the British point of view. Oh, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, But was that point of view the right point of view? And maybe our elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, where you've learned a rather different story about this, are wrong. What's wrong here? Yeah. Well, like the ones that it was very obviously biased towards the British, there was no explaining the colonial motivations outside of that one part where you said that, like, someone who fought on the side of the colonists during some of your war saw a certain perspective, but that was the only example. Right. I hadn't yet flipped into my British persona yet at that moment, yeah. but yeah. Um, so it's not giving the justifications. Did you have something over? No. No. I, I, yeah. Well, I was just kind of going to say that uh, in high school, I've never heard this point of view because all I hear is that the British are evil. Yeah. They have, like, no reason for doing anything. Like, the Boston Tea Party was, like, this big patriotic, like, we did it. Like, I actually don't think I knew why we actually it's a party you know it was it was lovely um no that's not the way that it was taught i'm sure but nevertheless this is a perspective that we don't tend to get um until you get to college until you start um like on that first day flipping the map from one side to another what does it look like from another perspective this is a different perspective but the piece that I'm, I want to I press just a little bit harder on, is any of this wrong? Yeah. I don't think any of it is like necessarily wrong. I feel like it's more coming towards like a mainly biased point towards the British. And I feel like the main point is that like you need both points of view to see like you know where each person is coming from the final program. Not necessarily wrong. I'm glad that I was able to present it to you and you're not um, rejecting it. Was there anything that was particularly convincing? Was there a piece of evidence or a slide or or something that you felt like, wow, that's important to think about? Was there something that was less convincing? I think I'm going to leave that, but I want you to keep mulling that over. Um, and we've got another bit that I'm going to do, and then I'm going to be asking some similar questions toward the end. And pull that in. What was most convincing um, from this side, from that side? This is what I, I put up right at the beginning. Um, and then this awful, stupid British Professor Trotty went on a tirade where he was saying unbelievably mean things about our colonies, freeloading, that is mean. 
did you guys bring this here or just find this? Um, we're in the middle of a class. We'll oh. talk later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was very interesting. Um, freeloading colonists, that's just insulting. Whining? Good Lord, what is the matter with this guy? Getting all the benefits? Well, of course they should have benefits. Paying for their... What? Not only do we pay something in the Navigation Act, but we pay taxes ourselves to the colonial assembly, to the colonies. Our assemblies have tax power, and we've been paying taxes ourselves to ourselves. We have been running things within our own uh, colony. If we're not paying as much as other people to the empire, maybe that's something to talk about. But don't talk about us not paying taxes. Um, So this is just insult. You want to know what we should really be talking about? We need to temper the tyranny of the British. The British turned away from their fairy faith and liberty is what's going on here. In the wake of the Seven Years' War, over and over again, Parliament demonstrated that it had abandoned its sense of democracy, abandoned its defense of us. And obviously, by the time you get to the Coercive Acts, I would say, obviously, its goal of, this is a word that you need to keep in mind for the next 20 years of American history, usurping, taking away the power and authority of the colonies, especially the colonial assemblies. The colonial assemblies are more democratic than parliament. Not everybody in Britain votes for parliament. Um, Not everybody in the colonies votes for the uh, colonial assemblies either. But more, a greater percentage of the men, white men, I'm just, you know, being realistic here, um, are voting for their elected officials in the assemblies than voted in Britain for the parliament. It's more democratic. And undercutting that, that's undercutting us. And for generations, we've had a way that we've dealt with the motherland, with Britain, and they are violating the way in which uh, we have done business um, all the way through this period. We did not start with violent protests. We did not start this process after the Seven Years' War, thinking these wild thoughts that this British Professor Trotty was talking about. We were measured, offended. Yes, we were offended. We were offended by the, um, by the line drawn through the Appalachian Mountains, the proclamation line. We win territory like, England, like uh, European powers win in any war that they fight. That's what you do is you settle up at the end of a war by trading territories. You can see that throughout the history of Europe. That's what happened here. And Britain gained all these territories and they're saying, don't go there. What the hell is that? That, to start with, is insulting. That we now have all of this land. Uh, We have tripled the size of British North America. And you're saying, oh, but stay right here on the East Coast. That's insulting. This is insulting. Um, So what did we do? We were measured. We were calm. We had our legislators who protested to parliament directly um, that, you know, we are taxing the colonists um, and this is an encroachment upon the colonial assembly's authority to tax. This is where 
we started to get a little up in arms, and for good reason. Legal documents throughout the colonies, nobody can avoid this tax. This is a way of pulling everybody into a money-making venture that we've never had before. For us? No, not for us. For things that are going on in the rest of the empire. A storm of protest? Of course it did. This is affecting everybody. Legislatures resolve to oppose the Stamp Act Congress. We're getting our act together. Um, We just started out petitioning. We're going to continue to petition, but a lot more strongly. And there are some people who are going to be in mass protests. Um, Some had some violence. I'm not condoning the violence. Um, But there was some violence where um, uh, Stamp Act officials... Um, were tarred and feathered or their houses broken into and stuff uh, like that. A movement to boycott British goods was underway. That put pressure on British merchants who put pressure on Parliament, and they repealed the act. Why would they repeal the act? Because it was wrong. We knew it was wrong. It was clear that it was wrong. This is not the way that we've done business with Britain and with the empire, and they are imposing upon us and our colonial uh, assembly's ability to tax. And this shows how we're right. Who cares about this? Blah, blah, blah. You had to say a few things to cover your butt when you backtracked from having the wrong policy. We didn't pay much attention to this, and why would we? Say what you need to say in order to get to the place where you're doing the right thing. You're taxing us again? The next year. Well-versed now in how to do it. We had practice by this point. Um, Colonists are boycotting British goods. There's a circular that's um, sent around to other colonies about how to defy the duties. Uh, It's not. It's three more years before they actually come down. But they come down. Why do they come down? Because of the horrific violence against, I'm going to call them martyrs to liberty. These people who were standing up to having a standing... So, you, okay, you need a standing army in North America? Okay. Put them on the frontier. You're going to put them in Boston? Why the hell do you need the Red Army? I mean, the Red Army, I'm sorry. The Red Coats. Well, that would be quite a different story, wouldn't it? The Red Army in, in this moment was... <laughs> now, the Red Coats in Boston, in, uh, housed on Boston Common... This is not the British Army protecting the colonies. This is the British Army intimidating the colonies. You don't put them in an urban area full of British people if it's not to manage the British people. So is it a terrible thing this happened? Of course it is. Who's to blame? The people who brought this army to Boston are to blame. Heartless. The soldiers weren't there to protect us. They were there to intimidate us. It was inevitable that there was going to be a conflict. And instead of celebrating, the colonists somehow into what the hell is that? We got tea from the Dutch as well as the English, and now we can't. Cheaper tea from the Dutch. 
you brought down the price. What you did is try to cage us into a monopoly and under the guise of lowering the duties, tighten up the enforcement that keeps us rigidly tied into, you know, it's not like tea was just tea like it is now. Tea was the most popular drink of the time. It was a central part of British life in Britain and the British colonies' life. For the last decade, Parliament overstepping its bounds year after year after year. It's not like we weren't telling them how they're being problematic. We told them. We petitioned them. We got out in the streets and petitioned them. This is just another example, sneaking the issue of taxation um, by the people. These are patriots who decided you've got to, in fact, hit them in the pocketbook. They're not listening to us. Let's throw the damn tea into the sea and then see what they think of that. The spirit of liberty is alive in the colonies. Where the hell has it gone in Britain? Are they trying to enslave our British sons and daughters? That's what it seems like from this moment. And then, you know, you push somebody far enough and they show their true colors. And we pushed them. And look at what they showed. All of the colonies, not just Massachusetts. Massachusetts is freaking out about this, of course. It's about to destroy the colony. Um, but all of the colonies, I mean, cutting off the port is cutting off the lifeblood of Massachusetts. That's trying to kill the colony. All of the colonies are responding to this. Um, ending the, you know, limiting and ending democracy in uh, Massachusetts? What a giveaway. What is it you care about? Making money off of us. What is it you're willing to sacrifice? Apparently, the lives of colonists, the massacre, democracy itself, and the lifeblood of this colony. You're revealing um, your true nature. Does Parliament have the right to make such laws? Usurping the rights of colonists, forcing its way. This is the moment that we have a Continental Congress that meets in 1774 for the first time, in which representatives from all of the colonies come to try to figure out how do you respond to this kind of intolerable series of acts against us. 30 seconds. Was anything here wrong? No, not really. That's not what the issue is. Was anything here biased, or was I just telling the truth? Yeah. Um, I think, like, just both sides saw each other as a threat, and I think that, like, any time one side did something, the other side just took it very aggressively. And, uh, like, with, like, the Tea Act, 
um, England was like, oh, I'm lowering your taxes on the tea so that you buy more tea. But for the colonies, it was like, you're trying to trick us into whatever. Into <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Well said. Yes. <laughs> um, excellent. Other um, responses? Um, what's going on here? Is anything wrong? Was there a particular part that was convincing? Or now, having heard the other side, less convincing than it was when you heard some of these arguments in middle school, in high school? Yeah. Uh, I, they didn't like teach us, they didn't teach me at least, that the colonies kind of said, yeah, we're not going to pay the equal amount of taxes that all the British territories are. Well, I don't, they never framed it like that. I framed it like that yeah, as a historian. They weren't framing it in comparative terms to what other people were talking um, about, but very good point that, um, that that issue is one that seems from historians to be pretty darn important. And at the time, I don't know that everybody knew what other people were paying. You know? um, sometimes um, I, I like this class period. So I've been teaching this since before you were born. Um, this, this class and this ta- the class period. And I like this one a lot. And that's why I chose it to be one that might be filmed. Um, because every time I do it, I convince myself the revolution was stupid. And then I convince myself that it was a good thing. And you can convince yourself of both of those things with the facts that are at hand. Um, it is not that there is one part of the evidence that's right and the other part is wrong, it is that it depends on how you look at it, (laughs) which is the way life is. I mean, life is complicated like that. Um, So, so yeah, Um, the the piece that gets me the most is the one that you're you're poking at there, Reed, Um, which is um, if the colonists really understood how much in taxes people were paying in Britain, would they have felt differently about the taxes that they were asked to pay? Um, they didn't understand that, and people weren't setting it up in that way. Um, and it just makes me wonder, um, is communication really the problem? <laughs> um, just if they had talked to each other a little better, would we not have had a revolution? Um, uh, other things that from looking at this other side, this American Dr. Trotty, who's um, talking about this, that come to the fore for you, that stand out as being either more convincing or less convincing in this side of the argument. Okay. How do we reconcile? directly competing perspectives, directly competing use of some of the same evidence, just looking at it from different lines or valuing it differently. How do we find meaning in this moment? What an incredibly important moment in the development of the United States, right? Perched on the edge of deciding I'm going to pick up a gun and start shooting at people in red coats who I was fighting next to 12 years before. I mean, imagine what it would take 
for somebody who thought of themselves in, eight, in 1763 and 4 and 5 as British first. And then what am I next? I'm a Virginian. What am I way later down the list? An American? What, what the hell is that? I mean, it isn't even a, a, a classification yet um, to think of yourself as somehow united with the other 13 colonies. Um, so how do, you, how do you get from this place of I'm British to let me pick up a gun and shoot the British? That's a lot in 12 years. And so this is a really important moment. And figuring out what's meaningful in this moment is a lot of what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. We're starting it now. We're going to be doing it in the next couple of weeks. What does this add up to? (laughs) That's a sort of, you know, where does this leave you in thinking about this conflict? And I want you to talk to the person next to you about anything in terms of this for another one minute or maybe two, just to get your wheels going on this. And and we're going to talk about this together. All right. I like a lot of the conversations I'm hearing little bits and pieces of, but I get uh, tired of not being a part of the conversation because I'm extremely self-centered. And so I want us to talk as a group um, about anything that you guys were just talking about that's sort of leaping up to the fore for you. Um, Yeah, James. Um, I was saying that I don't think that even during the Seven Years' War that the colonists really identified as British because, like you said, they didn't really fight far away from their homes. They went back to their farms during harvest time, so they clearly cared about defending their own homes, their own colonies, more than the British interests. I think they just shared a mutual interest, which is why they were together, but I don't think that they were British. Okay. So maybe the era of benign neglect and, uh, that we talked about last time, the ways in which the British were hands-off and governing the colonies and letting them do more of their own thing, led to uh, a sort of um, underground separation that becomes revealed when you have all of this conflict. But maybe there was more separation that was already there. Is that fair to say? I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. That's, that's really rich. Other things that you guys are, have, have uh, that came out of your conversations that you were just having. What does this add up to? Yeah, we talked about it just adding up to all the 13 colonies, like joining as one and kind of being united and then eventually becoming its own nation. Okay, that's definitely the direction we go in, where the separation just in fact get, gets more and more separate. We're going to be looking at Concord, Massachusetts in um, a book that we're looking at, and we're going to be seeing this sort of process playing out with individuals, with an individual community. But one of the key moments that we're going to be talking about in a future class period is once you start fighting, (laughs) it's really hard to go back. There's blood that's been spilled now. And so once Concord and Lexington happen in 1775... That's a sort of increasingly sep- separating kind of, uh, kind of thing. Um, can we hold more than one perspective in our mind at the same time and say both are um, legitimate? Or do we need to pick? Are you picking one? 
Are you deciding one is right and one is wrong? Is that where you're going to land with this? Why not? Um, I just like kind of took a look or like look at my notes. I had two separate pages, one British, one colonial. Like I kind of like formulated my own ideas based off like what makes more sense to me, what was more convincing, like my own point of view. I think everybody in this class probably has their own point of view and sort of what. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, processing it and finding what is most compelling on one side or on the other. Um, just in, by show of nods or something like that or raised hands or something, um, are you guys thinking some of the arguments the British were making made more sense than the Americans and some that the Americans made made more sense than the British? Or are you leaning really in one direction or the other? Uh, oh, that was an, you can't nod when I say two different possibilities. Um, just the first one. Um, where you take some from both. I'm seeing. I'm definitely seeing some nods there. Yeah. Uh, at least from just looking at the facts, I would say that I like if I'm like looking out in space, looking at the whole picture, I'm probably like, okay, I agree with. There's the, the earth. There's the battles of. Yeah. yeah, I would be like, yeah, I, I understand the British, but I also understand like the Americans. I'm like, they're not wrong, and it, it almost comes up kind of like, well, yeah, this was over there. You're not. It, they don't know. They have. They're working with the information they have. Yeah. This is so happen. There is a way in which you can step further back from the way I was going blow by blow and say, isn't it kind of inevitable if you're separated by an ocean and you're getting more and more complex civilization in British North America that you're going to be growing apart from what's going on in Britain and you're going to be a little more alienated from the needs than, that they have? Um, so there, there's a way in which... Um, this is the moment it happens, but there's a sort of natural development here, and Thomas Paine has some really interesting things that we're going to read about his sort of justification for why would, for instance, why would an island rule a continent? They shouldn't. It's common sense that we should rebel, um, and so forth. So we're going to be getting into that. Other things. Um, from what was convincing on one side or the other, or how we can balance perspectives. Is there a way that we can formulate this that takes both into view? Is there, can you think of a line or a couple of sentences that would allow us to give a nod to both the British Dr. Trotty and the American Dr. Trotty? Yes. Take a stab. Um, I think, I don't know if it's in the second part of No, it's all right. It's in, in the moment. Um, yeah, I think definitely looking at both, you can really, if you really sat down and had like two, like the two, like let's say like this was the British Dr. Shadi, and then the American Dr. Shadi, I think looking at both, you could really align yourself with either. And I think that's the great thing about history, is that, you know, there's always going to be two sides to everything. No one was there with like a film crew <laughs> recording what was happening. Um, That's right. We're being much better documented right now yeah. than anything else no, documented like, back there. There's no one like documenting yeah. you know, the Boston Tea Party, for instance. Yeah. So we kind of have to work off of what people were there saw. Or different people were documenting yeah. it in very exactly. different ways. So yeah. someone would have been, you know, British side, someone would have been American side. So I think taking both, you can kind of best formulate an opinion that way. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you can sort of apply that to the moment and say, um, 
um, doesn't it always happen in history that one action means that everyone adjusts to that one action and there's going to be a counter action? You know, that both sides are in fact um, moving along to get it together. It's the opposition to the Stamp Act that might have led to more um, parliamentary um, members, parliament members, being more firm about um, how to crack down on the colonies later, that we were teaching them a lesson, and they were teaching us a lesson. And those lessons, you know, Stamp Act, Towns and Duties, Boston Massacre, you know, that this is, it's a dance. History is, is not just one person moving around. It's everybody moving around the dance floor. Um, and in this case, you've got the British perspective and the American perspective bouncing off of each other. Do you think we would have been as angry if they weren't so angry that they were doing things that otherwise they wouldn't have wanted to do five years before, but because of all the things they saw us doing, now they were doing, you know, it's a, it's a bouncing back and forth. So were they usurping the powers of the colonial assembly? They were, to some extent. But those were never really written down anyway. <laughs> you know, those were informal kinds of relationships that we had in the era of benign neglect, as it's called. And Parliament absolutely had the right to tax. But we absolutely felt like they are utterly trying to change the relationship between colonies and mother country in a way that we cannot endure. And once you get to the coercive acts, the 1774 closing of the harbor and all of that, that just seems brutal. There it really does seem like to colonists, you can't interpret this as anything other than trying to destroy this colony, Massachusetts. We can't condone that. When did the American Revolution start? That is exactly the right answer. Looking at me with sort of big eyes and saying, uh, what is the date that automatically comes to mind in terms of the revolution for everybody as of elementary school or maybe before elementary school? What's the date? Uh, July 4th, 1776. Declaration of Independence. There are good reasons for that. When did the fighting actually start? Now, Lexington and Concord, which was 1775. When did it become inevitable that there would be fighting? You could call that the beginning of the revolution. And I'm not sure that you could say it was the coercive acts that made it inevitable. And if you say the coercive acts, then maybe what you're really saying is it's the Tea Act or the Boston Tea Party or, you know, whatever. Which thing, what was the spark? Some historians call these proximate reasons for something to happen, the ones that are close at hand, the spark that lights the fire. What's the spark 
Is it going to be Lexington and Concord? Is it going to be the coercive acts? You can make an argument for any of these things, but it's a whole series of them that are happening in the early 1770s, um, 1773, 4, 5, that are leading us in the direction. So, okay, not proximate, not the spark, but what's the tender? What is it that's fundamentally putting us in a place where we're doing this, what's, you know, seemingly amazingly huge thing of turning from, in 12 years, I'm British, to I'm going to shoot the British. What's the tender? What's the, what does the spark set fire to? I think there you got to go to bigger themes, bigger arguments. And we're going to be building some of those in the coming several class periods, talking about how colonists were thinking about themselves, the empire, the revolution um, that was underway. Um, so, but these bigger themes, is it England's change? So 17, I'm going to say the, the biggest change is 1774. I'm, I'm sorry, 1764 with the uh, um, Sugar Act and the Stamp Act in 1765. I can't say my dates. Um, because that's when, boom, um, Britain changes the nature of our relationship by turning the switch and trying to profit off of us in a different way. Nothing, you know, that's going to cause problems. Or is it America gradually over several generations becoming something different than British? Diversifying the population, becoming compete competitors with Britain in terms of seafaring, New England states, um, seeing ourselves as being more and more distinct. You've got generations who were born and grew up here. Is it something like that? There are different answers to all of this. In one more minute, I want you to write down what you would say this class period adds to the bigger question of when did the revolution start? Thanks for listening to Lectures in History. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.